show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hi, folks. Uh, this is another episode where rather than having a guest, uh, my producer, Brendan Reed, and I jump on the microphones and we interact with some of the content of my book because we're really committed to trying to help our listeners immediately start to get some relief from external and internal pressure. Right now, we're in a series of conversations on sources of internal anxiety. There are many sources of anxiety and part of our hope is to help you diagnose them. We're focusing on some of the sources of internal anxiety. And uh, so we'll finish up that conversation now. Steve, um, part of being in leadership, um, I think that presents two specific dangers and we'll talk about one right now, is called what you've deemed isolationism where um, you think that you are the only one capable of doing something, whether it's a project or a task. Uh, how and why do we tend to do that when we're in leadership? How do we diagnose it? How do we figure out what it is? Like, talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, so that's right. One of the sources of internal anxiety is broadly loneliness. But what we're doing in this material is getting down deeper than just loneliness and looking at two forms of loneliness, which is isolationism and exceptionalism. And yeah, we'll take them one at a time, but isolationism and exceptionalism. The truth is every leader stands alone at some point. It's just the nature of leadership is a chronic loneliness, but that's actually not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the time when a leader must stand alone and make a decision that's unpopular. What we're talking about is the internal need of a leader to feel alone when they're actually not alone. And I think that's different. So, you know, I, I bet if we could take one of history's great leaders, I bet Winston Churchill dealt with loneliness. Like he stood alone against his cabinet to lead England through World War II. We're not talking about that. We're talking about when a leader has an internal need to feel alone in order to gain something. And so, yeah, there's two sides to that coin. One side is isolationism. The other side is exceptionalism. So one of the clearest examples in the Bible of isolationalism is Elijah. Second, uh, 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 19, he's battling um, Ahab and Jezebel and the great uh, battle at Mount uh, Horeb, I think it is. I'm, I'm riffing out of my head, so I may have the mountain name wrong. But he's tackling the prophets of Baal, Lightning comes down, God wins, Elijah wins. It's this incredible epic battle. And then the next chapter, it's this incredible depression that Elijah goes into where he runs into the desert and he gets suicidal. It's, it's very stark in the Bible when you read it. And he feels extremely alone. And then God comes to him and has a conversation. Now, before we dive into the conversation, it's absolutely a reality that I think most leaders feel, particularly ministry leaders, that after you've had a ministry high, it's very common to crash. And I think we are seeing that in Elijah. He had this incredible spiritual high, and then the next day he's just completely depleted. So we're not really talking about that in this episode. That'd be a great conversation for another day. What we're focusing on is isolationalism, the, the need to feel alone. And so what happened with Elijah is he's now in the desert, he's self-isolated, God comes to him, and God basically says to him, what is going on with you? And Elijah basically says, nobody but me understands what I'm going through. 
So self-pity almost. It is kind of a form of self-pity. And it's nobody but me knows how difficult this is. Nobody but me knows um, the troubles I'm going through. There's an old spiritual song, Nobody Knows the Troubles I've Seen, Nobody Knows But Jesus. It's a great song. It's just almost never true. It's almost always the case that there are more people in the world or in your life that know what it's like than you give credit for in that moment. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a form of internal anxiety that we need to feel alone and it makes us anxious. And what happens with Elijah is God actually shows him you're not alone as you think you are. Like God says, hey, I've got thousands of prophets tucked away that have not bowed their knee to Baal. I've got Elisha, who I'm going to have you go anoint. God's basically saying to Elijah, hey, man, like I'm here and you're hurting and I want to take care of you. In fact, it's really, I find it to be a really moving moment. God actually provides a meal for Elijah and really takes care of his physical needs. But one of the ways that God takes care of Elijah is showing him you're not isolated. You're self-isolating. Um, I've seen this happen, um, particularly uh, it can be a chronic problem for people who are tackling one of the world's most greatest challenges, inner city ministry, global poverty. Uh, it can feel, you can feel very alone. You can feel like what you're doing is a drop in the bucket. And one of the ways when you get discouraged, and, and, and that's very real, like your resources versus the need is always going to be out of balance. If you're dealing with, say, global poverty, or if you're dealing with uh, inner city hardships, what you're offering is almost always going to be so small compared to the need. But what happens with a leader is, is when you get exhausted, you lose perspective. And after you get exhausted and lose perspective, you self-isolate and you go into self-pity and you say, nobody but me knows what it's like. I'm the only one out here is what you're I'm saying. I'm the only one doing this. If, if only other people knew. And um, for example, I, I've, I've done some work in the slums of Nairobi in Kenya and a good friend of mine leads a work there. And uh, that's one of the challenges for some of the Kenyans is to recognize there are so many people in Kenya doing this work. Uh, you're not alone. And it's not that the work isn't great and overwhelming. That's true. But there's actually, you know, hundreds of NGOs in Nairobi doing work. And have you connected with them? Have you met and shared uh, with them? Just yesterday, I had uh, lunch with a pastor that is about an hour and a half away. We kind of knew of each other, but we didn't know each other. And we, we like each other. So we thought, oh, we're going to connect. And um, just by sharing some of our struggles together really stopped you, me from feeling alone. Or, uh, so uh, just really quick, you're not saying... Um you're not saying if somebody's like, oh, I need to be alone right now to kind of process what I'm going through. That's different than saying I'm alone in what I'm doing and nobody else is doing it exactly like me. That's right. Yeah, I appreciate the clarification. There's nothing wrong with being alone. There's nothing wrong with isolating for a season of refreshment, of course. And there's it is a reality that leaders will be lonely. That, all of that's true. We're talking about if, if you find yourself feeling frequently no one else gets it i'm the only one that's where i think things get really dangerous for a leader um so you, you you're saying what i'm hearing then is one way to combat the isolationism 
is to find somebody else who's sharing the same experience that you are, to go out and pursue them, find them, maybe sit down, have a drink, have you know a cup of coffee, eat some dinner with them, and just talk through what's going on. And it'll not only make you feel less alone, but I think you'll probably feel invigorated. Am I, am I hearing you right? Yeah, I, that's great. One of the solutions to this source of anxiety is networking. Networking. You, I think you have to get comfortable, if you're in this kind of leadership, cold calling people. And um, it's almost like going out on a date. I've done this before where I've actually shared my desperation with somebody. And I'll call them and say, hey, I'm a church leader like you are, and I'm really struggling. And I've told by a friend that maybe you can help. Would you please go out with me kind of idea. And I've actually formed some friendships through that. Um, but yes, when you find yourself chronically um, uh, in self-isolation, um, one of the things you can start to figure out is what is it that I think I need that self-isolating is giving me? Because I know this is one of the things I struggle with. That's how I figured it out. I was really looking deeply at my own life and some of the sources of anxiety in my own life. And I notice this tendency when I get exhausted. Um, and when I have too many things on my plate, I go into self-pity. That's what I've noticed just about myself. That doesn't mean it's for others. But if I'm, if I'm running hard in ministry and I start to get depleted, I'll start to think I'm the only one that understands. And that's never been true in my life. It's also true that sometimes I'm alone as a leader. Sometimes I make decisions that are unpopular. But it's this um, nobody knows but me thing. And so, yeah, one of the best antidotes is to network with others that have done what you've done. My father-in-law, who you know, uh, Dan, um, he's a retired pastor. And even though our context were very different, our eras... He passed it in a different era than I passed her in. I've not yet gone through something that he hadn't gone through when he was leading a church. And that's always been a great lesson for me to realize, man, we are not that different. Like different states, different era, same struggles. Um, so yeah, so networking would be a way to go for sure. It sounds like this is more for leadership types, like people who are leading people. But can it also come down to a more... Um, a smaller level in Absolutely. a sense like yeah. how, how do what does that look like yeah like so you know if like right now i'm raising teenagers and overall i describe my teenagers as a pure delight they're amazing but yeah there's things i don't know how to do i get anxious uh other parents of teenagers absolutely can help me no i think this um is on any level of leadership friendship or family if you notice yourself going into self-pity I think the challenge is uh, how long do you want to wallow in that? Because to me, what, what really brought me freedom is to realize, wait a minute, I'm believing something that's not true and I'm continually to purposely believe a lie to bolster something I need. And in figuring that out, I realized I've, I've made no room for the gospel. Like the good news of God's unconditional love is so much better than the bad news I'm choosing to believe. And what really was hard for me is realizing how hard I was working to reinforce that narrative so I'd get self-pity. How, how did you realize that, though? How did you identify you were isolating besides just um, the self-pity? Because I think a lot of people, it's hard for them to realize that they're even in self-pity sometimes. Yeah, I, I think family systems theory really has helped me learn how to notice recurring patterns in my life. I think that's how, is I kept noticing myself move into self-pity, and then I would ask myself, 
oh, what's going on that I'm moving into self-pity? That's when I figured out, oh, it's, it's ministry exhaustion. Then, boy, next time I was reading through First Kings, just in my Bible reading, it like woke me up. I'm like, whoa, Elijah moved into exhaustion and then went into self-pity, like same, same deal. Um, and that's when I figured out when God showed Elijah there's more people, that really helped me realize, okay, I'm actually almost never going through a situation that I alone can relate to. And so I then formed the discipline. That's when you have a choice, right? Am I going to continue to believe this lie or is there better news available and more freedom available, more health? And so God showed Elijah that there's more people and I thought, okay, then I'm going to make a discipline to connect with others and stay out of that self-pity. flip side then to the isolation is, is isolationism we mentioned at the beginning is exceptionalism yeah is and correct me if I'm wrong I think it's you've mentioned it's when you feel like you're the only one that can do something yeah. nobody else can do it except for me no one can do it as good as me um so how is that different from isolationism is it do you combat it the same way or do you identify it the same way like why is that not a good thing Right. So, yeah. So, isolationism is self-pity. Exceptionalism is self-aggrandizement. So, it is the flip of the same coin, but one is kind of tearing yourself down in a way, and and one is building yourself up bigger than you really are. So, exceptionalism is the, the internal need that we have to believe the lie that no one can do it as well as I can do it. Nobody but me. So what it has in common with isolationism is the phrase nobody but me. But then isolationism goes down this dark path of depression and loneliness. Nobody but me understands or nobody knows. No one sees me. Even as I'm talking about it, I think that's what it is, is you don't feel seen by others. That's why networking is such a powerful tool because then you feel seen and cared for. Exceptionalism is like this form of self-righteousness if only everybody worked as hard as I did, if only uh, people had the skill that I have, and it's a form of arrogance and, and self-righteousness, and it's a classic problem for leaders who over-function. So one of the things you can do if you listen to this is you can look at your leadership dynamics and you can ask yourself, in any leadership scenario or in any team, who's over-functioning and who's under-functioning? And if you tend toward over-functioning, which caring people tend to do, we tend to jump in and try to fix. If somebody's hurting, we tend to make up the difference by doing more. If you tend to be an over-functioner, you're at high risk of exceptionalism because the more you over-function, the more that person has to under-function and it becomes a really toxic um, situation. So I'm going to take a stab then at, one of the ways maybe to combat the exceptionalism is to, if you're in a leadership position, is to pass off some of the tasks that you have to people who exactly. can do better than you in that, in that area. Make sure We covered it in a previous episode. Make sure you're not always the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. A sign of a weak leader is when they're the one that can do it better than anyone else in the room. So a couple of things is, are you only attracting people uh, 
where you need to be the expert. And almost all the case, you're never actually the only expert. You've just created a dynamic where everyone has agreed not to bring their best because everyone understands that you need to look the best. That's one side. So uh, equipping people, but the other one is is empowering people to do what today only you can do. So for a long time at Discovery, I was the primary preacher. And uh, it's not that I'm a great preacher, but after years of preaching, I had definitely created a style of preaching that our congregation was used to. And we would have uh, guests come in and they wouldn't land as well. And it wasn't it had nothing to do with the fact that I'm a better preacher than they are. It's that I had led our church to a particular taste in preaching. And so when we brought on an associate a few years ago, it was really important uh, because he was a very gifted communicator to help him hit the targets that I'd set. And so I spent quite a bit of my time um, naming the targets and the taste I created so he could succeed. And, you know, three years later, even well before that, Boy, he gets up to preach and I'm excited. Like it's, it's going to be a great message. And it's not um, because I've trained him to be a great preacher. It's because I've equipped him. I've given him all the secret knowledge I had so that he can hit the target I'm trying to hit and that there's room for both of us. And of course, you know, we've had other preachers too, but that's, that's what we work on. So you're saying then um, when you're combining that exceptionalism is to make sure that when you're handing off the task to somebody else is to give them maybe some guidelines of the ways that you had done it in the past and then allow room for them to kind of make it their own in a sense is to not make sure that you're micromanaging them. You want to give them the space to be able to make whatever the project is their own. Yeah. A couple of leadership mentors I've really learned from Craig Rochelle, who's also a preacher. He says that if you want to, I'm going to get it wrong because it's off the cuff, but it's like, if you want to, you know, get a volunteer, um, delegate a task, but if you want to develop a leader, delegate authority. And I think that's huge. If you find yourself in an exceptionalism situation, are you delegating authority to people you lead? Or are you just getting them to do stuff? Um, and then Don Wilson uh, is a mentor of mine and a friend of mine. He talks about, he's like, look, you have to create like room in your leadership for people to be able to move around in so they're not doing it exactly like you, but they can't do it so different than you that it confuses people. So you have to learn how to expand your taste to make room for others to then you know, find their place in. Mm-hmm. But if you find yourself really particular about too many things, it may be that you have to get what's intuitive to you out of your head and onto paper and paint a clear target for people. And if you keep finding that they can't hit your targets and you're the only one, there's something wrong with your leadership. Um, I wanted to circle back and kind of do a recap on the exceptionalism is that, so what you're saying is anytime that you use the language, I'm the only one that can do this. That's when you've realized that you have put yourself in the, I'm the exceptional person in this specific area and you need to take a step back, find other people to help you um, do your job and to divide it up in a sense and be able to delegate to them what you would like for them to do, but then also step back and allow them to make it their own. Is that right? That's right. And it's really important to delegate authority and power, not just the task, so that that person can do it in their own way. And I think the final step is you have to, and I think most leaders I know actually do this well, but you have to make room for others to make a contribution that you're incapable of making so that you can then go to them and say, 
thank God you're here. You're making us a better organization. If you weren't here and it was just on me, we'd be a weaker organization. And so exceptionalism is the lie that everyone should be like you. It is a form of narcissism, I think. It's, it's kind of like if everyone was just like me, this would be a better place. Uh, Paul says that the body of Christ means that diversity is, a much, is what makes it a richer organization. So how does that translate to the family systems dynamic? Like how, how in, in what situations do the child or the parent find themselves being exceptionalist in a sense? I mean, I think every parent would tell you that when they've had multiple kids, they can't believe that such radically different personalities came from the same set of parents. And so I think most parents I know that I respect are trying to help each child flourish and thrive in who they are. Uh, so the way I operate is very different than the way my kids operate. And the worst thing I could do for my kids is to try to make them do the things that they do like I do. Uh, what, you know, what's interesting since you brought up family, like my wife and I often joke cause, uh, all three of our kids are really gifted athletes and neither my wife or I ever were gifted athletes. <laughs> and we sit in the stands watching our kids. We're like, how did this happen? Like, how did these incredible athletes come out of our bodies, you know? And um, I think, you know, a, a true narcissist, exceptionalist would not ever make room for someone else to be who they are. Um, but in an organization, it comes down to how things are done. A, a true narcissist will make you do something that doesn't matter their way, uh, down to how to clean, how to take out the trash, all of that. So team killers, like those team total killer. team killers. Yeah, if, if you're a leader looking at your organization, um, you can measure the health of your leaders by their ability to build a team. And over time, if the team shrinks and the leader is doing all the tasks, you've got an exceptionalist. You know, that's a, that's a grave danger. Do you have any areas in your life where that's part of the, the struggle, either exceptionalism or isolation or examples of that? Yeah, I, I needed a lot of coaching, the preaching example, I think um, I think there's some things I'm too particular about and that I, I subtly or not so subtly moved our church to be too particular about. So good people with a good message would come and we would judge them because they didn't hold my particularities. And, and I went and got some coaching. Um, actually, Don Wilson was one of the people I reached out to. And, and I said to Don, look, I'm... I'm going to bring in a second preacher and I don't want to drive this poor man or woman crazy with my particularities. And um, he, and actually I was, was also in therapy at the time, getting some counseling, and my counselor said, uh, don't, don't reduce any of your particularities, just share them and make room for the other person. And then it was Don that really encouraged me. He's like, hey, the natural tendency when you find another preacher is to find someone completely different from you he says, what you really want to find is someone different from you within your wheelhouse. And that was super helpful for me. I just knew, man, if I don't figure out this exceptionalism, um, no one else is going to be able to preach at our church. And that's terrible for me, for the church, for the person I bring in. It's, it's, it's weak leadership. That would be one example. Uh, I have a really dumb example. We, our church had a a large format banner printer for a while. For years, we leased it. This is back when we were portable and we had to print banners all the time and it was cheaper to have a banner printer than to go pay for them. And for about a dozen stupid reasons, I was the only person on staff that could get this stupid printer to print. It was really a particular printer and 
Um, and it took a lot of effort. It wasn't an exceptionalism on my part. I was never proud of the fact that I was the only one that could get it to print. But the whole organization's ability to print a banner came down to my availability. And I had to work hard on how do I translate what I've learned in troubleshooting to equip others to be able to print. It's kind of a dumb example. because it, it works. It wasn't that I was arrogantly proud of the fact that I was the printing maestro. I actually couldn't wait to get off my plate. But um, it, the, the effort involved in getting what I knew how to do intuitively with troubleshooting and putting it into a PDF document and a step-by-step guide for people to use the printer kind of relates. So one thing I'm noticing in both isolation and exceptionalism as we're, we're talking about it is when we move past either isolationism or exceptionalism, a lot of the times the people that we move towards in those situations and within isolation and exceptionalism, we end up giving them and empowering them the ability to go and maybe lead and become a greater person in a sense. Like we're not, right. we're not, we're not saying that they become greater because of us. We're right. saying that with your ability to look past these two situations, you're giving the gift to somebody else um, by moving past, isolating yourself and pretending that you're the best that there is. Is that right? That's right. We're actually saying that ex- your exceptionalism is actually polluting someone's actual gifts. You're exactly right. We're not saying that we alone are now developing them. That's just another form of exceptionalism. We're saying pay attention to the lie that you believe that you're the only one that can do it because you have gifted and talented and people of goodwill in your organization and the way you're showing up is stunting what they're actually wanting to bring. So yes, if you can uh, develop them, get what's intuitive to you. And I think where this whole thing begins with exceptionalism is noticing these over-functioning, under-functioning relationships with the banner printer, which is, again, a fairly innocuous example, I kept noticing how much I stepped in and rescued people when they couldn't print a banner, and I started to pay attention that I would over-function. And so then just working on a way to equip them. And and so that's one thing you can do. If you keep finding yourself saying, I alone, um, pay attention to where you're stepping in and rescuing. And uh, typically in a true over-functioning, under-functioning relationship, the more you rescue, the less that person then has to do so you can keep rescuing. And they might develop something or come up with something totally new as well that you never thought of. Absolutely. It's a great way to create um, a st- an incompetent staff. Is and, and then you'll just have a self-fulfilling prophecy in your head. None of them can do anything and then you keep over-functioning. See, I knew none of them could do anything and you don't realize that you're the problem. For more resources, you can visit managingleadershipanxiety.com and download a free chapter of my upcoming book. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss. 